well. So tonight we're going to boldly go where no Chad has ever gone before. I've been the student minister here. It'll be nine years in August. And I have never taught the same lesson twice in a row. But today I am. Today I am. The reason for it, if you guys remember, so it's been about two weeks, and the way that I introed the last lesson, if you remember, I told you it was going to be one of the most intellectually challenging lessons that we would ever, that I've ever taught in here. The concepts uh, in that lesson were so heavy that <clears throat> I knew I, I had a feeling that one go at it, I wasn't going to be able to clarify it or expose you to it well enough. And so I thought, I could just move on and just go to the next thing and just go, hey, they didn't get it, so they didn't get it. Or some of them got it and others didn't, or it was confusing or it was difficult. Too bad, let's just go on. But it's really, that really is an opposition of what I want to do. You know, I, I don't, when I prepare to teach or preach, the goal for me is not to just say the words. I, I want you to understand. I want to, and I want to be able to say things in a way that makes what I'm trying to communicate understandable. And so um, I think this particular issue, it was the, the issue of free will, libertarian free will. Sometimes it's called autonomous free will. And this is the primary objection to the doctrine of election that's in the Bible. There are other objections that are cited, but I think this one is the most foundational. This is the root doctrinal issue. And so I didn't just want to leave it. I, to me, it just wasn't one where I can go, hey, that one was just hard, but it's okay if we... If, if we don't understand, it's okay. I think if we're going to deal with the issue of election, we have to understand this. and it just, it, It's just hard. I, I've tried to think of ways to make it more understandable. That is my job, and I'm aware of that. And so, you know, usually if I say things and no one understands it, I kind of go, hmm, I probably didn't do that right. And the last time, there, there were some things that I thought, you know, I got done, I thought, you know, I, I wish I'd said that a little differently or a little better. But I think the whole thing really should be said again. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, the issue of libertarian free will, this idea of freedom, to the, in a Western culture, and in, in America in particular, freedom is a big deal. And I don't think anyone would argue that. Um, men died to provide this freedom to us in the first place. So when the Revolutionary War happened, I don't know the death toll, but it would have been tens of thousands of, of Americans who died during that time. And people still die to preserve freedom for us in America today. They still die. They die every week, um, it seems. Uh, they certainly die a lot. And <clears throat> so any time there seems to be something that undermines freedom in America. There is automatically an outrage. And <clears throat> the doctrine of election, 
it just plainly undermines human freedom, at least on some level or another. And I think that's partly what makes this so difficult to swallow. It's really interesting. When you read the scripture, Paul doesn't go to lengths to defend this doctrine of election. Uh, In a lot of times, it's just assumed. He just references people as the chosen or as the elect or those who are called by God, those who've been drawn. And that's just what happens with Paul. That's what happens in the New Testament. It seems that their way of thinking didn't really have the same problem with that that ours does. And I think that makes sense. Their government at the time was far from democratic America. And so I don't think that that idea of I I have the total freedom to control my life and my circumstances, my decisions are ultimately on me. I'm the one who's ultimately making all of my decisions. I am ultimately calling the shots. I don't think they really had a problem with that as much, or it certainly doesn't seem that way. But I think in our culture, this is a real this is a real wall. This is a real battle, a real front that we have to address and we have to deal with. So <clears throat> the definition of libertarian free will that I want us to work with, this was one way that I tried to change this just a little bit. I tried to make this definition a little bit more helpful. How about this one? Ultimate human self-determination. Ultimate human self-determination. So Short of it is, what is free will? The definition that I'm going to work off of tonight is this one. Ultimate human self-determination. In other words, you basically do what you want to do. You make your own free decisions. That though, maybe, that though they're influenced by factors, though they can be swayed or persuaded, they're in no sense controlled by anyone outside of yourself. You are the ultimate determiner. People may be able to convince you of things, sway you one way or the other, persuade you, but you call the shot ultimately. Ultimately. So freedom in the Bible. You may remember from the last time, I pointed out two uses of this idea of free will that I found when I searched through the King James, the English Standard, the New American Standard, and the NIV. So I found two uses of free will across all four of those translations. And the categories were, do you remember the first one? Yeah, the free will offering. So the function of the word free will there is not to say that people have ultimate self-determination. And with that self-determination, they can offer sacrifices as they want. That's not what he's trying to communicate. When he calls it a free will offering, I think all he's designating is this. God doesn't require it. It's not mandatory for you to give it. The others were mandatory. So when he calls it a free will offering, he's not trying to say, hey, you guys have ultimate human self-determination. You guys are ultimately making, you are the final call in all of your decisions. He's not arguing that. He's just saying, God doesn't require this. 
The second use, if you remember this one, was from Philemon. When Paul writes to Philemon about the slave Onesimus. Onesimus escaped. He was apparently a runaway slave who was formerly... um, Serving, if you will, it was, their slavery worked different than like 1800s America did. He was indebted to Philemon and he ran away, he escaped. During that time, he was saved, ran into Paul, and he became very useful in Paul's ministry. Well, as Paul learned his backstory, he was like, Look, dude, you got to go back home. You got to go back to Philemon because you wronged him. You, you, you owed a debt to him. You were his slave, his servant, and you ran away. And now that you're in Christ, it is your duty to go and make that right. Well, he sends him with a letter to Onesimus, I mean to Philemon, the slave owner, and says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. I recognize that he was your slave, and I'm asking you, not to receive him as a slave, but as a brother now. He's in Christ with you and I, Philemon. He's with us now. So receive him that way. And he says this, that he could have required Philemon to do this. But he says, without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So, He's speaking to a Christian about the opportunity this Christian has to do something right without being essentially forced by another Christian brother to do it. He's in no way saying, Philemon, you you are ultimately self-determining. He's saying that I'm not going to come and try to force you to do anything as your fellow believer, but I want to give you the opportunity to do what is right. I want to give you that opportunity. So what does this mean? When people talk about free will in this sense, ultimate human self-determination, you are ultimately making your own decisions. And there is no other factor that's behind those decisions, ultimately controlling any of those decisions. It is, it is all you. What's the problem with that? Or what's the deal with that? The truth of that is that it's a philosophical objection, but it is not a biblical objection. What we cannot find in the Bible is not only the mention of the words free will in any kind of way that's associated with this definition, but we can't really even find the concept. And we talked a few weeks ago about some of the passages people will commonly cite 2 Peter 3.9, 1 Timothy 2.4, even John 3.16, and say, they'll read these passages and essentially say, see, everyone has free will. They are ultimately self-determining. They're making their own decisions that are not, in, that are not uh, ultimately controlled by anyone else. They're entirely free. They're autonomous. They have total liberty. That concept, though some people say it's in those texts, if hopefully you remember Uh, If you don't, uh, I I recorded it, I think, and you can listen to it again. Those texts just do not teach that. They they don't have free will included in them at all. And I, I can't find the concept in the Bible, which has always led me to the question, what is the big deal with this? I mean, like, 
why do Christians so hotly debate this? What, what is it about this issue that has made this such a hot button? Well, <clears throat> it's this philosophical argument, and here it is. So when people read the Bible, and this is a danger for everybody, me, you, everyone, I think what's happening here is that these, the folks who would argue against election because of this libertarian free will, I think what they're really saying is this. They're, they're making a philosophical argument, and this is it. If we're morally responsible for our actions, then we must be free. If we have the responsibility for our actions, then we must be free to do the right thing or the wrong thing. We are morally responsible for our actions. So the first is if we're responsible, then we must be free. Does that make sense? Do you track with me on that? So if I'm going to hold you accountable for something, then you have to have the ability to do the right thing or the wrong thing. You have to be able to make a choice. That's the premise. The second one is we are responsible for our actions. And the conclusion is, therefore, we must be free. So let me read that one more time. If we are responsible for our actions, then we must be free. We are responsible for our actions, so we must be free. Okay? And when I say free there, again, it's ultimate self-determination. <clears throat> so here's, a, here's an example, and this is the one that's in Romans 9. The person who affirms this free will in this sense is going to say this. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. For God to have hardened Pharaoh's heart, he could have only done so in response to Pharaoh hardening his own heart first. God would not have initially hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because that would have violated Pharaoh's free will, Pharaoh's freedom to determine his own outcome. That would have violated that. And so that's, that cannot be what's happening in Scripture. God responded to Pharaoh's own hardening of his heart, and he further hardened it, if you will, so that he would not repent. But God only did that after Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it was Pharaoh's self-determination. It was him ultimately calling the shot. And that's why his heart was hardened. It's not ultimately because God did it, because God created him for that purpose. It's ultimately, Pharaoh's heart was ultimately hard because he hardened it. He did it. That was a free choice that he made. There were no controlling factors outside of Pharaoh that 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 played into that decision. There may have been things that influenced it. There may have been factors that contributed to it. But nothing controlled it other than Pharaoh. Pharaoh was in absolute control over his own decision to harden his heart. That's the argument that the libertarian free will person would make. This whole premise that they read into these texts, I don't think makes sense 
of the totality of Scripture anyway. I would argue that responsibility does not require ability or does not imply ability. So being held responsible for something doesn't mean you were ever able to do anything else. You go, what? What are you even saying here? Well, Romans 9 says this, that God raised up Pharaoh for this purpose, that he might show his power in him. Well, you go, what do you mean show his power in him? What, what, What are we talking about? Well, if you think back to what happened when Israel came out of Egypt, in what way was God's power most clearly, most ultimately displayed against Pharaoh? Well, it was undoubtedly the story that every four-year-old who's ever walked into a church within the first five weeks of him doing so has heard. The waters part. Pharaoh enters into the sea with his entire army behind him. And the entire ocean then, at God's command, collapses back in on him. Now you talk about the power of God being on display there. It says that he raised him up for that purpose. Some people go, yeah, well, he raised him up after he hardened his heart. So Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then God just responds and goes, well, since you've already hardened your heart, this will be a really good opportunity for me to show my incredible power to my own people, for me to show my people in the most stunning fashion that anyone to that point would have ever seen, I am going to destroy the mightiest army on the face of the planet in one fell swoop. Since Pharaoh has already hardened his own heart, huh, this is a great opportunity to do this. The problem with that thinking is that that's just not the argument that Paul makes in Romans 9. And how do we know that? How do we know that's not what he's saying? Because it just says, God desiring to make his power known, you know, hardened Pharaoh's heart, raised him up for destruction. Well, so how do we know the order? That passage doesn't necessarily tell us that that Pharaoh didn't harden his own heart first and then God came in and decided, oh, well, since you've already hardened it, I'll make my power, I'll display incredible power in destroying you. How do we know that's not what he's saying? Because of the next verse. And Paul asks a question that just is difficult. It's very, very, very difficult. And I asked it a couple of weeks ago. I pointed you to it a couple of weeks ago. He says, you will say to me then, how can he find fault for who can resist his will? The question is, how can God hold Pharaoh accountable for doing something when he had no choice ultimately in the matter? Now, did Pharaoh make choices? Yes, he absolutely did. I mean, the the whole story of Moses going to him and the plagues. Pharaoh makes choices every single time. Real choices. They don't like bypass his mind and just sweep in. And he's, what's happening? And these words are flying out of his mouth and he can't control it. His brain function is completely shut down. 
and he's turned into a robotic, you know, pu- puppeteer. Hey, why am I doing this? I'm not trying to do that. Hey, you can't go free. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, it wasn't like he was possessed and taken over. In Pharaoh's human experience, he was absolutely rebelling against God. He was making decisions. He was refusing to let God's people go. But when Paul talks about it, though it's obvious that Pharaoh did make decisions, when Paul talks about it, he does not highlight Pharaoh's decision-making. He highlights the decision of the one who is most ultimate or who is ultimate in decision-making, God. And so he says, when I tell you that what God did to Pharaoh, and when I tell you that God determined before Jacob or Esau were ever born or done anything good or bad, that I love Jacob and I'm going to elect him, and I'm going to harden Esau, and he is not going to be elect. They've not even been born. None of them have done anything good or bad. You're going to hear me talk like this, says Paul, and you should be asking this question. How can God hold people accountable for doing what it sounds like he made them do? If Paul meant to say, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart first, on his own free choice, he would never anticipate anyone asking this question. If that's what he intended to say, he wouldn't follow the train of thought, the direction that he's going. Or he would answer the question very differently. So when he poses that question, how is that right? How does God just get to choose what whether people are going to love him or rebel against him or remain in rebellion against him, how does God get to choose that if the person is not the ultimate one making the decision? How does God get to do that? Well, Paul says, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? He doesn't answer the question very well. Not in any kind of way where your mind hears it and goes, oh, okay, I got it now. Who am I to talk back to? That didn't explain anything. That put me in my place, but it didn't give me an answer. I think it's clear that Paul is teaching that responsibility does not imply the ability to submit to God or to carry out the command. I think that is clear, plain as day in the text. Responsibility in God's economy does not imply that people have the ability to do it. Pharaoh was held responsible. And though he made choices, the ultimate choice he had no control over at all. How is that fair? I don't know. It's because God has mercy on whoever he wants. He has compassion on whoever he wants. And who are we to talk back to him as though we're the creator and he's the created? I, I, don't, I can't explain how that works. And I'm skeptical when someone says they can. I don't know that that's really knowable. How, how does that work? I don't know. I really don't know. Here's what we can't do, though. 
we can't start trying to, well, we need to get God off the hook for that. Gosh, that just sounds terrible. God, God is in total, God's in control of people's decisions ultimately. Again, I'm not saying people don't make decisions. You weren't like um, drawn near to your, to your drawer this morning or your closet and you felt your right arm fling up to a shirt and snatch it off the rack. And I'm, why am I, how am I putting this on? Oh, this is the strangest thing that's ever happened to me. No, we make decisions. But there are always two parties that are involved. And both of them can't be ultimate. You're involved in the decision making. And God's involved in the decision making. But both parties can't be the be-all, end-all. One has to be the be-all, end-all, and the other one has to be in subjection to the be-all, end-all. If you remember, I, I, told, I, gave, I told that story that, uh, that Phillips' seminary professor had told him. The ditch dude. Yeah, I said, imagine if in the garden the command was not donate the fruit, but it was deliver a package to a far, far, far away city in Tyler. And the command was not donate the fruit, but it was uh, deliver this package and don't walk on the right side of the road. There's a hole there, and you will certainly fall into it and die. But he determines, Adam determines, I'll be fine. The right side of the road's a lot prettier. There's rocks on the left side. It's not very well paved. You know, they, they haven't drugged that baseball field greater over it. It's just, it's, it's, it's out of control. My sandals are thin. Uh, this is pathetic, you know. He didn't even, even had sandals. These rocks are hurting my feet. The baseball greater has come on the right side of the road. I'm doing it. I don't care. I'm doing it. Steps over what he thinks is a pile of leaves. There's actually a trap he fell through it, drops 30 feet into a fairly narrow hole, and um, is stuck. He is still responsible to deliver the package. Eve, who fell into the hole with him, is still responsible to deliver the package. Because of God's design, their children that they have while they're in the hole are because of God's design for humanity. They're still required to deliver the package. And their children's children, who also live in the hole with them, in the pit, they're also required to deliver the package. And their children's children's children, and so on and so on. But not one of them are able anymore. Not one of them are able. But they are responsible. And I think that's exactly what happened in the fall. We fell into sin to a degree. We're utterly morally bankrupt with no ability to fulfill God's commands. No ability to fulfill God's commands. And this brings me to the reason that I think this free will argument is completely nonsensical when it comes to the meaning of Scripture. The essence of the gospel that saves is that we are responsible, but we are not able. Isn't that right? We, are, we must give an account to God 
But we would all affirm we were born in sin, Romans 12, or doctrine of original sin. So we were born in sin, and then we continued in sin. We, we, we played the part, just like we were born into it. And so from birth, says David, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's acknowledging. I, I, I never for one moment was righteous in my lifetime. Not, not for the split second. You know, if a baby can, whenever the kid can be cognitively like selfish, you know, whenever he starts actively deciding to be selfish, I don't know when that is. I mean, not long, a few months, six months, eight months, ten. You can start to see these little, you know, then by the time for, for with our kids, they, they get like ten months old or so. You say, let's not throw our yogurt in the floor. And they look at you and go, <laughs> you know. But they, they've been corrupt since they were born, though. Like the first sign of that is not the, the moment they became guilty. They were born in sin. They were never able to fulfill God's righteous requirements, and yet they were always responsible to do so. Do you track with me on that? So I think the essence of the gospel is that responsibility does not imply ability. Yes? If you do, you're a minority. Let's be honest. Yeah. He got into what is, um, we got into what is free will. Um, when, is, when do you start making decisions and when do you originally sin or you're born into sin? When are you created? Like, is conception, once you're conceived, are you created? And can you sin, like, once you're conceived or, like, the second? And so, Yeah, Romans 5, uh, Psalm 51 is one of the most powerful. You know, when David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he says, against you and you only have I sinned, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Well, his mother was married. I mean, there was no, like, sexual infidelity that we know of that was on her end. So some people have made that argument. Well, maybe the mom was... Sleeping around or something. What? There's no evidence that David's mom was sleeping around. It seems most, the most natural reading seems to be that David's saying, I was in sin when I was still in the womb. And that certainly fits better with, with the heart of the, of the psalm. Because if he were to say, in sin did my mother conceive me, he would in essence be kind of like shifting part of the blame. Well, I'm this way because my mom did it. But that's not the heart of the passage. It's all me, you know, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Um, and he's just confessing his own unworthiness. And so, and then you turn to Romans 5.12, which is the, um, in Adam, all sinned. You know, and so our, our sin, we in some mysterious way, but it's nonetheless real. When Adam sinned, so did we. I don't know how that works. There's multiple theories on people have ideas about how that could work. I think most of it is speculative. I don't, there's not a great explanation for that. But what we do know is that in some way, shape, or form, when Adam sinned, we did too. And so we were even born into sin. 
we never ever had the ability to obey God, to fulfill his righteous requirements. We were born in the ditch. We were born in that hole. And yet, we were responsible to deliver the package. We were responsible to be righteous. But we never had the ability to do it. Do you track with me on that? That is the essence of the gospel. And so when people pull the free will argument, well, people have their own uh, ability, their own freedom to make their own choices, and they are ultimate in that. They are the final say on their own decisions because I have a philosophical premise in my mind that I've adopted. You can't find it in the Bible. There's no passage that teaches it. I think it's implied there but I can't prove that. I mean, there, there's no passage that lays it out explicitly. I think it's implied there, but here's my premise. If people are responsible, they must be totally free to make the decision one way or the other to do whatever it is they're going to be responsible for. People are responsible, so everyone must be free. I think the simple understanding of human nature and of the fall makes that just silly. It's like, no, 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 no. That's why we need Jesus. It's because we are responsible and we are unable. We do not have the ability, but we are responsible. And so I, I, I think it's somewhat silly. Now, um, when we say that God is sovereign... What do we really mean by that? So if I'm saying that man does make choices, so hear me clearly on that, by the way. This, do you know what a caricature is? Have you ever been to like Branson, Missouri, or people draw like a, you know, you can get a picture of yourself drawn, but then the head's like humongous or something. They blow it out of proportion on purpose. The argument that I'm making is often caricatured. It is, it is distorted and blown out of proportion, and people treat it like this. People treat that argument like it's the real one. Well, you're just saying that people are robots and they don't make any decisions. Absolutely, I'm not saying that. I'm saying nothing of the sort. What's the difference? What do robots do? Well, they don't think, they don't have brains, they don't have brain function. No thoughts, any information goes through, but they're not thoughts in the way that we think about thinking. They don't, the robot brain certainly doesn't operate the way the human brain does. We have real thoughts, and we face decisions. We weigh out options in our mind, and we choose things. So we make choices. There is no denying that. And I, don't, I wouldn't attempt to deny it. I think it'd be silly to deny that, not to mention grossly unbiblical to deny that. Here's what I am denying. So let's get the caricature out of the way. Here's what I am denying. That the decision that we come to with our own cognitive thinking, we're we're weighing out the odds. Well, if I do this, this will happen. If I do this, this will happen. Here's my pros list, my cons list. Let's let's weigh out the options. I reject that our decision-making process is completely free. That God has no say-so in it whatsoever that God's not ultimately sovereign even over that so 
Again, I'm not arguing that people don't make choices. You do. You made a choice to come in here. You made a choice to put your particular shirt on as opposed to another one. You do make choices, and I do make choices. I don't see in Scripture any teaching that says, and those choices are absolutely free. God's sovereignty covers everything except your decision-making. God's in active control. He's sovereign. He's the ruler, reigning over everything actively, except your decision-making. I don't see that. I see something very different, in fact. Proverbs 16:9. In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So we plan, we make decisions to do things, but the decisions we end up making are ultimately of the Lord. He determines our steps. Or again, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. A, a confession of outright and absolute sovereignty. Total control. I will do all that I please. So when someone says, yes, amen, God's sovereign, except over election, except over my decision making, except over libertarian free will, except over my ultimate self-determination, God is sovereign except over that. The thing that I can't find in the Bible is the exception clause. I do not see it. I don't see a place where God's sovereignty is even hinted at that it's limited in any way. It seems absolute, ultimate, total. He makes his own decisions. He is in the heavens, and he does whatever he wants to do. The issue behind the issue. Why do I think people argue this? Because they want to get God off the hook. They think that sounds really bad. Back to Romans 9. Wait, 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 wait. What, what do you mean that God is ultimate in the decision? If God's ultimate in decision making, how can he hold people accountable for violating his commands? He gives people commands to do something. He prevents them from doing it. And then he holds them accountable for it. What is up with that? How can he do that? That is not right, they would say. I made this argument a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago now. Short and sweet of it is this. If someone puts me on the spot and says, hey, that makes God an ogre. So I've heard that. that makes, this, this makes God an absolute monster. He would ne- I would never believe in a God like this. I said that. 
I was 21 years old. It's crazy, that was 12 years ago. Yeesh, let's move on. I said that. I would never believe in a God like that. This is horrific. He's not allowed. I mean, no God who is good would ever do anything like this. He would never say, go do this, then prevent me from doing it, and then punish me for not having done it. He would never do any such thing, ever. I would never believe in a God like that. And the friend that I told that to said, then you will never believe in the right God. You'll never believe in the right God. Because this is the God of the Bible. And he actually continued on there in Romans 9. He goes, Chad, let me ask you something. When was it that you started getting to tell God what was right and wrong? When was it that you began to inform him about what he should and shouldn't be doing? Well, (laughs) um, I didn't, I guess. The only way that I know, the only explanation that I know that gives my mind any understanding, I think, uh, the, the, the only way that I know to look at this that's helpful is to try to understand what Paul says at the very end of Romans 9, and this is where I'll end. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? So that's the first thing that I heard. That's what I needed to hear because I was combative. God would never do that. It wasn't me being inquisitive. Huh, I'm just trying to understand. How how does that work exactly? I was essentially raising accusation against God. If he was good, he wouldn't do that. That's wrong. God cannot do that. He has not done that. He does not do that because it would be wrong. I was combative. And this guy goes, who are you? What's your name again? Joe Blog, nobody, regular dude, human creation. Who are you? When did you start getting that? I was like, oh gosh, this, this is abrasive. But it needed to be. But I think he gives us more help than that. At least it, it, I feel like it brings clarity to my mind. Well, what is said, well, what is molded, say to its molder, why'd you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? And then he says, what if God, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. So what if God chose to make people that he prepared beforehand for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? This is the argument I made a couple of weeks ago, but I want to re-clarify it because it's not simple. Um, to get, it's not an easy one to get the mind around. But I think it is very helpful. How can God do that? How can God harden Pharaoh's heart then hold Pharaoh accountable for having a hardened heart? How can he do that? Ultimate answer is 
I don't know. But here's what I do know. I do know this, that if God is not going to be an idolater, if God's not going to become guilty of idol worship, he has to do what we have to do, which is make a, the biggest deal out of the thing that's most valuable. Right? So the essence of idolatry is treating as most valuable something that's not most valuable. That's idolatry. You, you, you've, you've exchanged the greatest object, the, the, the object of greatest value for one of lesser value, and you've treated it as worthy instead. That is idolatry. For us, you know, we're not the most valuable thing. So when we treat the most valuable thing like it's most valuable, we are treating someone outside of ourselves that way. But God has a different situation. He is the most valuable. And so if he's going to treat the thing that's most valuable like it's most valuable, it's going to mean that he's glorifying himself. If he doesn't do that, he's an idolater. He's failing to treat the most valuable thing like it's most valuable. And so if in his wisdom, he knows the way to bring himself the most glory, and he doesn't do it, he is an idolater. If he has to choose and goes, well, I can save every person, or I, I, can, I can give away, I can give people autonomous or libertarian freedom, or I can, whatever else it is, or I can orchestrate everything so that it ultimately highlights the totality of my glory. The options are I can highlight the totality of my glory or do something else. Save everybody. Give everyone total free will, whatever it is. If he chooses this one, he is not God anymore. He is an idolater. He's in need of a savior himself. Now, it doesn't clear the air. How can God hold people accountable for things that he didn't give them an option to do? How, how did that all work out? It doesn't solve that problem. But it brings so much understanding to me. I'm like, okay, whatever God does, he does it all for his own glory. And if he is orchestrating everything to give himself most glory, then whatever it is is right on those grounds alone. If it's bringing the most glory to the thing that's most glorious, whatever it is, it is right because it's doing that. Do you track with me? So if it's, if it's, if it's not giving Pharaoh a choice and then hold them accountable for it, I don't know how that's right. But if it's what brings the most glory to the thing that's the most glorious, then it's right on those grounds alone, if no other. It's right on those grounds alone. Hopefully that is helpful. Um, you know, tonight is just interesting. It's not a sermon. It's just teaching. You know, it's just teaching. And at times I think, we just have to do that. This is just difficult. This is very difficult. If you want to read this, I, I wrote this in blog format, and it's on the website that I 
blog on. It's called ChristSupreme.com. This whole thing, I typed it out in blog form. And so if you want to go look at it, it's actually the very first thing on the top of the home page, um, for now anyway. And um, if you've got questions about it, let me know. I, I, won't, I won't teach it for a third time. I know it's probably still not all cleared up for you, but I won't teach it for a third time. I, I will move on, but I thought, I hope a second time was helpful. I, I, I hope. Um, but please, please, you know, if, if you've got questions, I, man, you know, I, I want to equip you to love the God who is based on the truth of who he is. I want to equip you to worship the God who is by thinking rightly about him. And, um, you know, if, if you go, well, I don't really know what I'm thinking about or how to think about this or whatever, just don't stay there. If you're confused right now, that is no problem. Just don't stay there. You know, get some help. Say, hey, you know, you said this. I don't really, I got more questions about that. It may be that you feel like your brain just fried and you don't have any idea what planet you're on anymore. You just need to go detox for a little bit and then you may have some questions. And that is totally <laughs> fine, too. Totally fine, too. Um, but just, uh, I love you, and, and I, I want to be helpful for you. I want to be useful for you growing in Christ and loving the God who is. So just let me know how I can help you do that. Let's pray.